This is The Future Of, where experts share their vision of the future and how their work is helping shape it for the better. I'm David Blaney. An innovative idea can change the world, but to turn an idea into a viable product, you need money. It's therefore crucial for universities to do a good job connecting their innovators with investors who can provide the capital necessary to turn those ideas into reality. Programs like Perth's West Tech Fest aim to bring investors and innovators together. I'm joined by two of the founders of West Tech Fest, the Director of Commercialisation at Curtin University, Rowan McDougall, and all the way from Silicon Valley, venture capitalist Bill Tai, who's also an adjunct professor of innovation at Curtin University. Thank you very much for coming in, Rowan and Bill. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Excited to be here. Uh, so, Bill, you've been a, a venture capitalist for nearly 30 years, and that times you've, well, there's, there's a handful of companies that you haven't been on the, on the board of. <laughs> um, and you've also helped out quite a few Perth entrepreneurs get their ideas off the ground. In the, uh, the West Australian, you're quoted as saying that Perth could soon become the, uh, the new Silicon Valley. How so? You know, I have to say that when I got when I first came to Perth and I got off the plane and hit the water here, um, I had this, uh, of course, wonderful moment standing at the beach, and I thought to myself, you know, I'll bet this is what California was like decades ago, except instead of California's gray water, the water here is blue, the sand is not brown but it's white, and the air temperature is about ten degrees warmer. And I thought, what a wonderful place to live. And on the way to the, uh, the beach, of course, you know, on the, uh, on the roads, I thought, wow, you know, the infrastructure here is great. You know, whether it's roads, telecommunications, the rule of law is fantastic. This is the kind of foundation you need to attract the workers that you need today to build the kinds of companies that we have that are basically moving bits around. Bill, Silicon Valley is, I guess, synonymous with innovation and tech and, and cool people wearing T-shirts and offices and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, is that perception changing? Are we seeing new Silicon Valleys pop up? Uh, absolutely, yes. I think um, so. Of course, the word Silicon Valley has the or the phrase Silicon Valley has the word Silicon in it, and I think there was a time uh, when I think it was really only possible to be competitive in the technology of the day at the time, Silicon, if you were in Silicon Valley because the products uh, and the process technologies to make the products in that era um, weren't a kid in a dorm room. Uh, they were teams of people that might number in the hundreds that were specially trained in certain areas like semiconductor physics. and. And you had to collect them in one place because the communications technologies that we have today didn't exist then. And so in that era, um, Silicon Valley was the dominant and only place. It was like the stock markets of, uh, you know, people's stock markets that had network effects because the people that understood those technologies that wanted to work on them, they got up and moved to Silicon Valley. So all the talent was in one place. And I think as we move from the core of the networks and the little things that move the atoms around to the edge of the networks and the user interface. And it's the next generation and the kids that use that stuff. The, the companies that build the applications on top of the technology stack, those can be anywhere. And they can be customized to local languages where Western folks may not have the 
uh, language or customs, uh, the, the, the behavioral uh, understanding of the markets in China or Indonesia or, or Japan. So you're, you're seeing now um, at the edge a cultural fragmentation uh, and creation of giants that map different societies and cultures because they understand how people do things. And so I think um, as technology continues to progress, you're going to see uh, the spreading of that and the ability to build companies that are scalable um, from anywhere. Uh, it is easier to scale certain kinds of companies in Silicon Valley because you literally have you know a million people in the valley that have built Yahoo and Google and Facebook, and they hop around from place to place, and they hop on the next wave to add, add value. But what we're seeing now is that it's, it's clearly more and more possible to build leaders in their categories that start in places like Perth, like Canva did. It's possible. Yeah, I think um, the term Silicon Valley can be overdone in, in government settings is, is often agendas about we want to create the next Silicon Valley here or there or uh, Silicon Valley has a particular set of characteristics that, that enabled its establishment, the some major investment from the Department of Defense and establishment of a couple of companies, some great universities that, that spurned uh, the tech industry that's around there. I think other regions probably have to look to what benefits they have and what base they have to grow uh, industries and new markets and I think as I said earlier we do have some big uh, big uh, companies that are based here and have uh, uh, really the, the the need to invest locally uh, we should use those as a base and look at some of the technologies that that they they need like autonomous operations like remote operations like uh, robotics and uh, and artificial intelligence and Use that as a base to grow. And uh, Bill, any uh, could, would you um, care to elaborate on, on what you mean by the what you mean by timing? Yeah, I think uh, of course um, markets uh, form at uh, there. There's a kind of a sequential building of technology waves on top of uh, prior waves, and uh, of course you know there are many different industries, but the one I deal in it was really founded around um, moving moving electrons around the silicon wave. And then on top of the creation of silicon chips, um, products like routers and switches and hubs and communications gear were built out of those little Lego blocks. And then internet networks were built around uh, off of those boxes. And then I think we've moved recently into a newer wave of uh, user interfaces on top of that network and the data science that is involved in trying to figure out growth, revenue, engagement of different products. And Depending on what you want to build, um, you need to be kind of at the right place at the right time. You know, building something from prior wave. If you wanted to start a silicon company right now, it's pretty hard. You know, it's it's possible to get traction around one particular little product, but to try to build a foundational company, very difficult and very expensive, because there's a lot of competitors in the market. And I think what we've seen in the newer era is uh, when there was a shift from things that moved atoms to things that moved bits and enabled kids in dorm rooms to create the foundations of monsters like a Mark Zuckerberg in his dorm room at Harvard. And so I think uh, as people think about what they want to do, you want to be uh, paddling on your little surfboard on a wave that's coming 
not trying to swim up the back of one that's already done with giants on it. And that's why, for example, uh, Facebook has succeeded. Google Plus didn't quite. Uh, I think all. they, yeah. I mean, it, uh, uh, a head start makes a ton of difference in technology because things change really fast. And the ability, uh, particularly in a market like that, where there are network effects, because, you know, if you think about uh, Facebook as a sort of a stock market of people, so to speak, if you think about uh, a securities exchange where you're buying or selling a share of a, like, you know, say a big company like IBM, once thousands and thousands or maybe millions of buyers and sellers of a share of IBM coming to one place, establish that as the place, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, for example, it's pretty hard for somebody trying to make a market in IBM at the ASX to get traction because everybody else is where everyone else is. And so I think once Facebook got going, because marketplaces have network effects, they build a, a barrier that's a natural barrier that's really hard to break. I mean, Google had that benefit as well in the ad marketplace where they had just so much traffic that the rates that they could offer uh, to sellers and buyers were better than everyone else's. You could also be too early though, because if you think about MySpace, for example, that perhaps they were too early, people weren't as uh, inclined to enter or to, to use devices or they weren't as accessible yeah. to, um, to have the, the content and photos and information that you could share with, with your peers. So people used it, but just not at the same scale. True. Well, and I think, uh, and you know, Google wasn't the first search engine. There yeah, was AltaVista, there was Yahoo, I think, as well. Yeah, there were several. Uh, I think Google might have been the seventh um, major search engine. I mean, there are many other attempts to become you know, prominent but, uh, from other companies, but the big ones were, you know, whether you, you mentioned you know, AltaVista or Yahoo or ink to me or Overture, or there were, there were a lot of them. You know, Netscape and Excite uh, had a partnership too. And Google just had a slightly more efficient way of categorizing and indexing the pages. And uh, they weren't the earliest, but they were still relatively early on the wave as the wave was still building. It's, uh, it's just a lot easier to get, get um, your share of a market when the market is growing and expanding versus already mature and you're fighting it out with, uh, with well-formed companies. Can you think of any innovations which have, or either which are around now or which have been around, um, you mentioned MySpace, um, which perhaps were a little bit or are a little bit ahead of their time? We're not quite ready for them yet. Well, I think, you know, uh, the whole cryptocurrency blockchain space is, uh, it's a really interesting technology that, that does, I think, have a lot of applications uh, that are going to be useful but it's still a little bit on the early side in terms of uh, commercial acceptance and traction. No. Well, I th look, I'd concur with Bill. That seems to be the area there. A lot of people are playing with where is the application for that fundamental technology. And, and I think people are casting the net pretty far and wide. You hear in some of the programs we run at Curtin, people have a blockchain for everything. And I don't think blockchain is the answer to everything. So it's going to filter down to a couple of core applications where the, the uh, fundamental features of blockchain really uh, align very well with the business model and 
I think it will, we'll see some successful companies arise from that. Rowan, it's your job to take an idea out of the journal article, out of the laboratory and into the real world. How does commercialisation work in the university sector and why is it so important? Well, most of the things that we see uh, from a commercial perspective are quite early. So they may have had some proof of principle in an academic or research model, but they haven't really gone through the rigorous and robust sort of testing required for release into the wild or release onto the public as it, as it might be. So what we do is uh, take what's being developed and then put it in front of industry and investors and try and get advice of what's required to take it to, this, to the next stage to get it into the marketplace and what hurdles might there be, what regulatory steps might need to be taken, what sort of scale up is required. And we look at trying to take it through a stepwise process of undertaking that pilot trialing, prototyping, proof of concept, regulatory approval, partnership with industry uh, to get it to a point where it's ready to be released into a product or service. Uh, it can take quite a long time as uh, it's five to ten years from where a, um, uh, a research idea may have uh, been generated to getting it into a product or service that can be used by the, the, the community. And uh, how are our universities going in, with respect to commercialisation? Well, there's probably a, a general consensus that we could be better at it. Uh, that there should be more industry and university collaboration. Uh, Australia doesn't rank well in innovation types of uh, rankings, and, but they have a whole range of different measures that look at the, the amount of patents filed, the numbers of collaborations with industry, the co-publications with industry, the, the co-applicants with uh, industry on patent applications, for example. And we don't perform as well as some uh, jurisdictions on some of those measures. But as I said, it, it is a long-term process. It does require companies with vision to take uh, a significant amount of risk to go early on next generation uh, products and services. And I think one of the things Bill's often says is you've got to have the right timing to be successful in the commercial market. And often a lot of the research that it's undertaken at universities is pre pre the, the stage that the market's at. And so maybe a little bit early on the, on the cycle and uh, it needs other sorts of uh, infrastructure to catch up perhaps so that some of these new innovations can be implemented. We hear a lot about the, uh, the innovation economy, uh, usually in, in annoying and ubiquitous government ad campaigns, but a, a report from Harvard University recently ranked Australia 93rd in the world for economic complexity. Um, well, essentially how sophisticated our exports are. Rowan, we mainly export rocks. What problems does this pose and how can we improve this? When I moved to Perth, I, I probably had a similar view that I thought that it was a relatively unsophisticated industry base, uh, the, the mining industry and oil and gas industry. And my, my previous career had been biotechnology and I, I was uh, a, little, a little bit despondent about the level of of activity in that market in Western Australia. But I, I think I've changed my view on that, that the mining industry is a big driver and adopter of technology. If you think about the autonomous operations and remote operations and robotics and uh, artificial intelligence that's being applied to these companies, which are essentially just big logistics businesses. They move stuff from place to place and, and make sure that um, it meets customer requirements. There's a lot of 
technology that goes into that process. And I think the advantage for someone like WA is that we have massive customers who are interested in that sort of technology and we can use them as uh, lighthouse customers for new developments in, in a whole range of different technology areas. And that's a, a focus of a lot of the sort of activity that we have here is uh, use what you have. Uh, you can't necessarily change uh, some of the fundamentals about a, a place like Perth and we do have a lot of advantages so that's, I think, the benefit that we have. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I agree. I think if, if you think about um, uh, the wave that we're on now, a, a lot of it has to do with AI and data science and things like that. And the logistics component of all of these massive companies exporting rocks and other things, uh, those present a, an amazing opportunity for uh, the modern data companies to apply their skills to optimize and make those things more efficient. And, the, and by the way, there are also, there, you know, it's, there, are, there are a lot of rocks, but there are also some um, interesting new companies. You know, if you think about what's happened with Atlassian or GitHub or, you know, the emergence of a company like Canva, um, there are quite a few interesting companies that are making an impact at a global level. GitHub's an Australian company. Started with a couple of Australian guys. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Microsoft bought it for $7 billion, I think. I think the thing that you've often said, Bill, is that it's changed from the, the wave that you talked about is that the, the low capital requirement for getting some of these businesses started means that you can start them anywhere, really. It's the idea and the code required to get some of these businesses up and running is, is not onerous and can be done by a couple of individuals. and. Yeah only a few hundred thousand dollars, it's when you start getting to scale that uh, you need to think about where you might um, co-locate or, or uh, set up a different establishment so you can build the engineering base to, to really get to the significant market level. Do you think there's a risk of companies being uh, perhaps overcapitalized? We've had WeWork, for example, uh, that turned into a bit of a calamity and that was, a, um, well, that was adored by investors in the U.S., yeah, I think you know we're we're in a uh, a short term uh, aberrant market. I think in terms of a capital market. And, Don't say the beat word. Uh, you know, I I there's always a bubble somewhere, and the bubbles move around. And I think where we are today, uh, just one person's opinion. Um, you know, I <laughs> I think we have uh, uh, because of the interest rate environment and the push for growth and the um, effectively the printing of money by so many governments, as that, as that money tries to find a place to stimulate you know, either spending or what have you to, to drive economic growth, it's pretty hard for that capital to find a home. So it's working its way into the capital markets inflating asset prices. And with interest rates where they are, when you look at the choices, if you're trying to put capital at scale out there to earn a return, um, pretty hard to get a big number on bonds at you know negative rates in some cases. And your pe- bank account's going to be getting well. That's not even going to keep up with inflation. Either. Sure. Well, and there are some bank accounts, like some countries have bank accounts where if you have over a certain amount, they they apply a negative interest rate to the they take a little bit of away every year just for saying thank you for putting all your money here, you know. And so, 
So I think, you know, it's hard to put it in cash. It's hard to put it in bonds and stock prices in terms of a multiple of earnings are at levels this world hasn't seen before. So, so with those markets kind of fully priced, uh, a lot of the money is trying to find its way into private equity and late stage venture capital, um, seed capital a little bit too, but you know, it's very hard to put a lot of money into seed projects. So, uh, the late stage companies that have momentum are able to attract capital at or it, up until last month. I think <laughs> these companies with a lot of momentum have been able to attract a lot of capital um, on the thesis that uh, if they have network effects or can become sort of natural monopolies, that capital is a weapon. And if you can force that thing to grow to become the leader in its category, by definition, if it's a big category, you're going to have a big outcome. And I think that's kind of what SoftBank, I think, was thinking as they put money into the Ubers and into the WeWorks and things like that. And, you know, it's not an irrational idea, but I think it it presumes that um, companies are like machines uh, and they're not really. You know, companies are basically made of a bunch of people that have, uh, you know, I think, subjective views on what they want to do with capital. And I think a lot of capital injected into a company takes away their discipline. And it, it might lead to cultures that just are not able to earn a profit. And I think that is part of the issue. You know, the losses that come with a lot of capital have, have made investors in the public markets after the high-value private markets um, shy away from the companies and the valuations because they, they look at the trajectory of cash on hand versus cash burned every month. And they say, oh, well, uh, this is going to need another financing pretty soon. And uh, it's going to do with my shareholding. So it's, it's making these prices in the public markets less than the private valuations. And with that correction around WeWork and a few others like Uber and some of the big giants that people had high, high hopes for, um, I think an adjustment is starting to occur in the late stage private markets. Yeah, I mean, this is really interesting because I think I remember asking you in 2009 when you came out about the bubble then because yeah. there was companies like Twitter and Facebook uh, that were going to IPO and they had these massive valuations and no profitability and it just seemed crazy at the time but they've steamed on since since then and it's really about uh, the ability to lend money and bet on these companies is is banking on the future and if you're positive about the future you continue to put money in and you continue to uh, be able to, to borrow if something happens that changes your confidence in the future the whole thing kind of yeah shifts yeah so, uh, Bill, you're quite heavily involved with the, uh, with the blockchain and the cryptocurrency sector. Pretty much every man and his dog has, a, has their own fork of Bitcoin these days. Do you see cryptocurrency replacing or sort of augmenting traditional currency anytime in the, in the future? Uh, you know, I guess it's a, uh, when you say anytime in the future, that, that is quite a long horizon. Yes. Um, I, you know, I think it's not going to happen in the next few years. I think over a longer term, which I don't know if that's 10 or 20 years, but I think it's probably in that range. Do I think that most currencies will be digital? I think absolutely the case. 
I think, uh, will they be um, accounted for or ledgered by things that look like blockchains? I think there's a very uh, high probability that they will be because it's a, it's a lower cost way to handle the, uh, the, the accounting uh, part of keeping track of those things. Um, do I think there'll be wildly open worldwide currencies that no one manages or no one sort of governs? I don't know. I think that one's going to be a harder one because um, I, I see a lot of company, uh, sorry, countries at th this point in time working on their own digital versions of their own fiat currencies and a, a, a little bit of uh, a lot of institutional resistance, of course, uh, to uh, things that threaten government's ability to control the uh, flow of of monetary units in their economy. So, so I think as long as the governments are not really comfortable with it, there's going to be a significant part of the population that isn't going to want to go there. Um, so I don't see it happening like very soon, but I think the long term, the, the, the application of the technology, absolutely. Uh, the existence of worldwide universal currencies, they will, they will also always exist, but it'll be a question of how broadly they're used. Rowan, West Tech Fest has, uh, is going to see teams of entrepreneurs pitching their ideas. Has anything caught your eye so far? Well, this year we've changed the, the format slightly and there will be a pitching session sponsored by the US uh, State Department, the local Perth consulate uh, on Roto tomorrow. And they're companies that are aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. This is part of the work that Bill's been doing on shifting a global competition. He's been involved in extreme tech challenge towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, there's a couple of companies in that that uh, I think are interesting. So there's one technology out of Curtin, which is a, a future a thermal battery technology. So one of the limitations on use of renewables on the grid large scale is being able to store uh, energy when it's being produced during the day and used uh, in peak periods. And, and some of the inhibitors to large scale battery use are the, the, the cost of doing it at, at scale. And this team at Curtin's come up with a, with a low cost material that can be used on a large scale to, to manage uh, renewable energy generation at, at, uh, at grid level. Uh, there's another one, a smaller business that's um, looking at uh, called uh, uh, Climate Clever, which is looking at educating people about climate management and schools in particular, about so it, it enables schools to manage their own power and electricity and energy use, but at the same time teach kids about uh, more effective uh, energy use. So that's an interesting one too that's um, from uh, uh, Curtin adjunct uh, Vanessa Rowland. And uh, Bill, have you noticed anything? Uh, it, uh, in terms of... Uh, of I don't think Bill's seen them yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no? I haven't, I've not seen them yet, but I, you know, the, the general discussion about um, a shift towards uh, companies that have an element of uh, sustainability that I think is a very important thing for this world today, because I think you, you know, of course, the, in my opinion, you have uh, uh, the the newer uh, companies represent the future of where this world is going in terms of both productive economy and uh, the way things, the the, the customs by which uh, people handle the use of natural resources and the output and the the byproduct. And I, you know, you think back to the uh, 
the the glamour and glory of the creation of plastic. And you know, you, I don't know how many of you in the listening audience have have seen the movie The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. But no, there's yeah, it's a it's a quite a famous film. I think from the fifties where uh, the Dustin Hoffman character is a uh, young graduate from university, and he's trying to figure out what to do in life, and he's um, he kind of hanging around with this family. You know, and there's some other color to that, which you know, uh, people that watch The Graduate they'll understand. Uh, and the the man of the house uh, puts his arm around young Dustin Hoffman and says. You know, one word, meaning the future, you know, one word, plastics, you know, and if you think about, you know, you remember all the like the cartoons and things from the 50s, 60s that you might have seen like little clips of plastic was seen as this thing that was just amazing and totally positively changing the world. And, you know, even Disney had, I think it was Disney or Epcot Center had a little displays of of you know whole houses made everything of plastic you know and because it was this new science fiction like material that was cheap and durable it would last forever and you know it was kind of like the future of the world was going to be built with these things man could conquer molecules and make things that were wonderful and 40 50 years later that shits around in the ocean. You know, a, a sperm whale just washed up on the beach somewhere. I saw a headline that they cut it open. There were a, a hundred, was it a hundred kilograms of plastic in it? You know, and so uh, nature has not evolved. Uh, nature takes a long time to evolve. You know, Darwin theories, they, they seem to work, but they don't happen in, you know, a couple of years unless they're insects that are breeding, you know, like with a short cycles. But, you know, I think the, the uh, the challenge that this uh, the, the world's environment has to ingest the things that ha- man has made it's it's a big problem and so and finally I think the last three years the awareness of issues like this not just plastics but you know carbon people have been concerned with carbon for the last twenty or thirty years but I think all of these things are coming to the forefront now and I think technology is one of those things that can be used to solve problems at scale. And to the extent that entrepreneurs today can do things and apply their energy and talents to, to fix the issues that we have created for ourselves for the last 100 years, it's time. We have to do that. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Bill and uh, Rowan, for coming in and sharing your knowledge on this topic. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Future Of, a podcast powered by Curtin University. If you have any questions about anything we've covered in this episode, please get in touch by following the links in the show notes. Bye for now.